Hey, welcome to Fathering Our Future, the podcast for dads. I'm Anthony Vandegrift, and I'm not the perfect dad, but every day I am trying to be better. I'm very excited to have with me once again, Dr. Jim Littles. Jim, thank you so much for being with me. My pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to uh, our conversation today. I will say this before we jump into that, though. For anyone who has not listened to the first interview that we did, I would highly encourage you to go and do that, especially if you are a Christian. I have to say that our discussion was my favorite discussion that I've had up to this point, and I don't always go back and listen to the episodes that I produce and put out, but I've gone back and listened to that one at least four or five times. Uh, so much that you contributed to the conversation. And the funny thing was I got home and I was just like still dumbfounded. Mm-hmm. And I told my wife, I said, I had a title in mind, but it's just not good enough. And I told her, I said, I want to title this, How to Be a Dad and a Christian. <laughs> like, like, you can't do it right if you're not doing it this way. But I think I opted for what Christian dads need to hear. So if you haven't listened to that episode, please go do yourself a favor and listen to that. But today, we are going to talk about something that is very important, and that is how child development impacts our fathering. Now, being a dad is one of those things that men have done since the beginning of time. And I think there's a lot of people like myself that even though it can be filled with its complexities, if they could do it, and so can I. And you just think you can manage to work your way through it. But the more I think about that, the more I push back against that thinking because we're doing something that's pretty significant. It's pretty important. We are, in fact, fathering our future. The impact that we make on our children in the homes is going to carry with them as they go out into the world, and our impact will eventually impact those that they build relationships with themselves. So I believe that, yeah, you can get through it, but why would we just want to do that? So uh, if we're going to do a great job, one of the things that we can be aware of is their developmental process, what they're going to go through and what they're going to experience. My wife and I used a particular app. I include myself because I was the dad, but she's the one who really used the app for our children when they were born. So this got us from newborn stage until about two years old, but it would send us notifications and it would give us updates based on when they were having particular leaps as children, like, oh, it this is the week that your child will start seeing colors instead of everything in black and white. So you can expect this and this and this, or this week is going to be a really tough week for them. You're going to see a sleep regression. The nice thing about that was when we knew what to expect and we had good expectations, we could properly plan for that. And it wasn't, oh, this is a disaster and the chaos is just too much because we knew it was going to be very chaotic. So having good and proper expectations based off understanding what your child is going through, it helps. Mm -hmm. It helps significantly. So that is what we're going to attempt to do today. We're going to understand the best that we can, very various phases of our children's development and how we can then adjust our plan as fathers um, to meet the needs that are present. So I can only speak to this a little bit because my oldest is six. So that's my experience basically goes up to that point. Now for everyone 
who might not know, again, you're a PhD in family studies, and you've been there and you've done that. So you actually uh, my oldest is forty one. Yes. So, a little bit of difference. <laughs> so you've got you've got the experiences. You've been through the phases, and uh, you have the experience to uh, to go right along with the education. So help us navigate the big phases. And I understand that this is a very open ended question, but right. I'll poke and probe along the way. But uh, navigate the big phases of our children's development so that we can get better expectations and have better practices as fathers. Sure. A couple of framing comments, if I can, before we jump into that is one is I believe uh, parents should work out of a feeling of competence and not incompetence. Unfortunately, in a world that has an expert for tying your shoes to roofing your house, it looks like you need 17 people just to get your family out of bed and on the school bus in the morning. Uh, So we want to make sure that we're not coming from a position of I can't do this. Instead, we're coming from the position of, I can do this. So from a position of competence, not incompetence. Secondly, you mentioned uh, using an app, and there are so many digital resources available, just simple searches on the web about developmental, and you'll get all the resources that you need. I'd like to mention that this is a shift from most of human history. Most of human history, this was done by storytellers or wise men and women. Uh, in a village, and villages were typically smaller communities, kinds of things, but the importance of storytellers. Uh, the storytellers could link today with the ancients, those that had gone by. And so even though it'll be important to see some of these pivotal developmental pieces, I think it's vital for parents to not do this alone. And yes, you can use technology as aids, But the greatest aid that you have is the aid of community and relationships. Sure. And uh, unfortunately, many people say, well, my family was all messed up, so I don't even know what to do. Well, every family has its uh, messed up pieces in (laughs) it. You are not alone. Uh, When I was uh, a Bible college instructor years ago teaching a human development course, one of the students came to me and said, Brother Littles, I... I don't think I should ever get married. And I said, well, why is that? He said, well, I was abused as a child. And the statistics are is that I will be an abuser. And I said, well, wait a minute. Uh, You're not reading the statistic properly. And second of all, statistics aren't determinative of your behavior. So I had to back him up and let him know that, yes, statistically, an abused person is more likely to abuse a child than a non-abused person. But a majority of people who are abused do not become child abusers. Mm. So at the first blush... It would look like, wow, if I had abuse of a, as a child, then I should make sure uh, that I don't uh, have children to perpetuate that on the world. And no, uh, you're more likely than an unabused person. However, uh, you can also use that as a springboard to great parenting. Sure, absolutely. Uh, and so being in relationship with others. So when we talk about developmental stages, Uh, The app that you had for up to two is probably going to be better than one from, say, 15 to 17 years old, uh, (laughs) because the beginning of life, there are more commonalities. And then as children grow and develop uh, due to family, due to uh, even genetic codes in their body, as you know, having more than one child, they are not uh, carbon copies. Amen. <laughs> so as we're looking at this, we've got to make sure we're realizing that this these are averages. These are kind of ballpark norms. And if your child isn't walking by 13 months, 
don't get freaked out that my sure. child has a problem here. Most children will be walking by 12 months. Right. Some children will walk at nine months. Now, don't sign them up uh, with the New York Yankees because now they <laughs> they are they have a uh, they have a body kin- uh, kinesthetic intelligence is what right. that's called. Uh, you can't determine kinesthetic intelligence at nine months old. Uh, but there's going to be this wide range from nine months to 12, 13, 14 months. Same way with speech. Some children are going to use words very early, making sentences even very early, and others may delay till they're two or three years old. Sure. So don't automatically get freaked out by those pieces. I think that's a really good thing. I'll just comment real fast because we had a very similar situation to what you just dealt with. Our son didn't really speak until... Ooh, right after he turned two, mm-hmm. and he was speaking a little bit, you know, the mama, right. dada, he was doing that early on before 12 months, but 12 months came around and just stopped, just went away. And so our big concern was, I guess, the cultural concern is, is he on the spectrum? Yeah. And so we start, you know, going down this avenue. Well, he had hearing problems. Ah. So as soon as we had his tonsils and adenoids removed and put tubes in his ears, Within three weeks, he was just like, you need to shut up, kid. And so and so that really, you know, kind of worried us. But I think that's right. reassuring to hear that, right. look, there's a big Wide window. Yes. yes, yes. Okay. Yeah. And uh, some children will point instead of talking. And if you automatically jump in and do what they're pointing to, you're going to slow down their uh, oral skills. Because, so eventually you say, well, if you'll ask what you want for, I'll get right. it for you. But pointing for the glass of milk isn't going to get you a glass of milk anymore. Right. So there are small things that you can do along the way like that. Uh, another piece is thinking of uh, how do you think of your job as a parent? Uh, so as we are looking at these developmental skills, we are not looking at them like components of an automobile. Uh, so we have an engine, and so we need an engine expert, and we have transmission, so we need a transmission expert. We have windshield wipers, so we need windshield wiper experts. We're not breaking down children into discrete pieces that are uh, separated, and we want to become an expert in those five areas. Instead, we want to see it as a socialization process. For Christians, we're going to call this discipleship. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the general community, they're going to call it socialization. How do I prepare a child that is equipped and ready to handle their tasks. Uh, dads who are listening uh, to this podcast, let's say their child's two years old, you are wanting, this is going to be freaky, but you're wanting them to be successful men and women in the year 2060 and 70. Yeah. When I think of 2022 <laughs> and the stuff that's going on now, and I think out 50 years, <laughs> you want them to be successful at 2070. Well, they're not even going to be my age at that point my age I am now. By then, I will be very successful at pushing up daisies. Uh, But 50 years from now, that's what you're equipping them for. Yeah. So at at the first, that that creates an anxiety of, oh, no, how in the world can I instill uh, competencies and moral fiber to an extent uh, and an emotional stability? How can I instill these things to an extent that a world 50 years from now, which Futurist, it always amazes me of how much they know about the future until you get there and then they right. realize how far yeah. <laughs> off. Oh, the, not quite. Uh, the one guy that nails it, he gets all the spread about yeah. the one right. uh, prophecy that he had right. There's no conversations about <laughs> all of the missed futurist right. pieces. Right. Just a couple of years ago, they were prophesying within 10 years, every car would have to be auto driving or you wouldn't be able to get insurance. 
Now, the latest stuff the last week or two is, wow, did Silicon Valley really blow this one? We're not going to have yeah. automatic cars uh, anytime <laughs> soon. So thinking of this, we're, we're looking down the road with a spirit of competence in a community. Uh, and as Christians, I'm, I'll describe that as discipleship. So yep. when a child misbehaves, discipline does not mean whip, whoop, have or has whooping. Uh, discipline means to form them as a disciple. And that strategy of discipling, discipline, will look different for an 18-month-old than it will for an 18-year-old. Can't use the same strategies because the developmental state at which they are uh, is different. Sure. Uh, I think it's appropriate to, to smack a child's hand, now not abusively, but mm -hmm. to get a child's attention if they're putting their finger into an electrical socket. Sure. Uh, you don't want them to have the experience to learn from that. You want to uh, circumvent having the experience right. to do so. So we're going to think of it in terms of we're preparing men and women for long after we are gone. And so that's why this is, as you mentioned, such a critical task. Uh, we are not making them in our image. Uh, that was one of the things my major learning point I had as a dad is that my children had their competencies, their skills. And if I, if I respected their competency and skills, then I would be able to prepare them for what they needed to be, right. not to build page three of my resume. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, otherwise, you wind up saying, well, uh, well, I happen to have a doctorate and a couple of master's degrees. Well, you know, my kids have to have. And my first child was the one that helped me learn, Dad, you need to see me. Yeah. Not see me through you. And so Jennifer, a special mother with two sons, uh, one's 20 and the other one's 17, both taller than I am. Uh, she's done a great job as a mom. Yeah. Didn't go to college. Uh, for me, uh, I was when, when she was growing up uh, with my understanding of development and gender, whenever she would say she wanted to be a nurse, I would say, well, why don't you be the doctor? You know, because I don't want them to limit sure. because of societal limits. I was wanting to free that up, but I didn't realize I was also creating anxiety. Just because she could do those things doesn't mean that was the right thing for her. So this is how we have to know our children. So we're going to look at developmental pieces but then we have to know our child. Yeah. Wow. Because our child is not uh, a paint by number, you know, where, where all these little pieces fit together and they all come out looking well if I get it all right. So you're not going to get it all right. And you started off by saying you're not a perfect dad. And if that's our goal, we should not have children because the quest for perfection in ourselves and perfection in our children will perpetuate very harmful behaviors. But if we can build a, uh, a culture of grace and forgiveness, sure. which means we don't get it all right uh, and we're willing to repent of it, then we're in a place where socialization can happen. So I think those are very critical for understanding uh, children's development, those big contexts in which this happens. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if, if that really needs to be your context approach in that conversation. Otherwise, like you said, you're setting yourself up for yeah. misery, right. essentially. Yep. You Good. will never achieve what you have in your mind to achieve. Right. right. And, and uh, it's also arrogant at thinking that I know what 2070 is going to look like. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. Uh, I was born in 1961. My parents were uh, born in the middle of the war, World War II. And so I was... 
they were the first generation really to grow up after the war, and I was the tail end of the baby boomers. There's no way my young parents in 1961 knew what skills I would need now in the 2020s. Oh, sure. Uh, so that that's an ultimate of arrogance. So instead, uh, we build competencies and flexibility into our children. So as they encounter new things, they can say, well, I, I got this. I've learned stuff before. Right. That's what development is about. We're building competencies at each stage so that when they get to the next task, they have some successes behind them that give them, instead of a fear of the next change, a sense of competence. I don't know exactly how this is going to play out, but I can navigate it. Right. That's what we really want to build into our children by understanding their developmental pieces. Yeah. Wow, that's critical. Um, okay, well, let's start down the path of the developmental phases, I guess yep. we can dub it as that. Um, We're going to think in several broad categories. Okay. Okay, there's the physical pieces, what they do biologically, uh, and this is the walking piece, that sure. kind of thing. Uh, we're going to think of cognitive pieces, how is their brain forming and developing. So the development, so the development, for instance, of a as a, of a an infant is going to be more in the age of what's called sensory motor. Uh, child, this is why oral stage. This is why the child grabs something, sticks it in their mouth, uh, because <laughs> that's how they make sense of the world. So they sense things by touching, feeling, hearing uh, through the senses. Our goal is by the time they reach. Adolescence is that they're moving into what's called formal operations. And now you really sense this is happening, the formal operation, this last stage, according to Jean Piaget. This last stage is when children all of a sudden can think in theories and big ideas. Mm. Uh, I always have to laugh when I listen to conversations of high school students talking about climate change or economic <laughs> crises, because if the world would just give them control, they would have it fixed within three months. Sure. Uh, uh, glaciers would grow back. You know, all <laughs> exhaust would be gone. Everybody would live in circles and sing Kumbaya every night. There'd be no more war, no more violence. Because, And the reason this is the case is their brain has just gone to a new level where they can understand theory. They can think theoretically. However, they don't have any life experiences to pull it off. Sure. So when they start thinking that way, don't don't poo-poo it and say, no, that's not there. You help you have to help walk with them so that your experience plays into their uh, element. Now there are two primary ways of thinking of cognitive development. One is what can the child do on their own? So there are some fun things that uh, Piaget would have them do, which is say uh, conservation of number. With conservation of number, you would have you know five pennies, and beneath that uh, you know five uh, uh, donuts or whatever. And if you line them up perfectly, which is more, the pennies or the donuts? Well, everybody knows those are exactly the same. There are five, but if you take the donuts and stretch them out, or the pennies and stretch them out, all of a sudden now, whichever line is longer, hmm. there's more. And same with conversation of volume. If you take your cup, you have two cups, the exact same size, clear so they can see. Exact, yes, that's the same. But if you take one of those and pour it into a tall beaker, that beaker has more in it sure. than the other cup does. So the child hasn't, and that, this, that's going to happen about the age of four or five, that that's going to kick in. So before that, uh, you don't expect them to understand 
conservation of number, conservation of mass, conservation of volume. Uh, now, there's some things that parents can do. Sorting socks is a great pre-math activity. Okay? Sorting socks. Well, fantastic academic journey. <laughs> this is the beginning. This is the stuff astronauts are made out of, <laughs> is sorting socks. <laughs> That's all it does. This is it. Uh, so this is not slave labor, getting your kids to sort socks. This is, this is helping developing their cognitive skills. Because there's got some major tasks we got to do here. We've got to do grouping. Okay. okay. These are daddy socks. These are mommy socks. These are big brother socks. And these are your socks. So that's what we're going to do first. We're going to group them. Yeah. Who's do you think this one? You think yeah. mommy can wear that? No, you silly daddy. Mommy can't wear that. That's mine. You are. You have lost your mind. And now the child thinks they are taking care of you. Right. They don't know what senility <laughs> is, but if they did, that's the word that would come to mind. So you're grouping those socks into these five, these four piles. Yeah. Daddy socks, mommy socks, big brother socks, my socks. And then you get to uh, group them inside by colors or shapes or style or however you choose to do that and it's so uh, funny one one uh, math teacher was using these plastic uh, geometric shapes uh, in their class I think it was like kindergarten first grade kind of thing so I want you to short sort these stacks and they had differences of colors and differences of shapes and the expectation is now the directions were sort these uh, geometric shapes, uh, geometric tiles. Those are the instructions. Sort them. So the child sorted them and they did. the child didn't put green and blue and red or they didn't put triangles and circles and, you know, uh, by sides. Mm -hmm. And so the teacher is confused. And then, no, no, you didn't sort them. Oh, yeah, I did. Well, explain to me. How did you sort these? I like these and I don't like these. <laughs> <laughs> so the child had done exactly what was asked. Sure. But their cognitive place was, wasn't in terms of color, wasn't in terms of size, wasn't in terms of shape. It's I like and I don't like. Yeah. So, but this is the stuff that astronauts are made out of. We are beginning to help develop the mind and thinking in terms of matching. Now, these are also going to be uh, pre-literacy skills. Uh, noting shapes and colors, mm -hmm. those are the things that are going to develop into literacy later. Uh, so reading happens long before children are learning the alphabet. Wow. Okay. So uh, that's one way to think of cognitive development is in terms of what can they do and what can they not do. Okay. That's Jean Piaget, uh, a Swiss child psychologist. On, on the other hand, there's a Russian psychologist writing at the uh, early to mid uh, 20th century, Vygotsky. And for him, it wasn't near as interesting to see what a child could or could not do on their own. For him, coming from a, a more collectivist society, the question is, is what can this child do with assistance? Hmm. So this is where we get the scaffolding idea. We're going to build a scaffold around the child to help them develop skills. And a great example of this is mom or dad making uh, pancakes. Mm-hmm. So I think, uh, just by the way, I think it's a great tradition for dads to have a breakfast tradition of some sort. Saturday morning uh, pancakes. Saturday morning pancakes. <laughs> you know, the menu doesn't have to be large. Right. Uh, but it's a place for you to spend some time with your kids. Uh, and Absolutely. to uh, smile and laugh and tell stories and clean up messes. 
without uh, berating them for getting stuff all over the place. Yep. By, by helping them know cleaning up messes is a part of life, you are positioning them for success down well, the road. Well, it's a big lesson in that. As opposed to saying, we got to make sure this place stays spotless because mama not going to be happy. <laughs> we're we're going to get it back to mommy st- semi-mommy standard when we're done. Right. But between everything being perfectly mommy standard and us getting breakfast and then near mommy standard, because we never get to mommy standard. Sure. Uh, near mommy standard when we're done, there's going to be some flour and spilt milk and laughter. Yep. And we're not going to get angry. We're not going to, because there'll be seasons of frustrations that are there because the child wants to be able to do it and do it well and make you proud because that's part of development uh, for the child. Uh, the the psychosocial pieces. I want my daddy to be proud of me. And oh no, look at that. And these are at times dads will then need to make a mistake of their own, <laughs> not not to belittle the child, but to help the child realize, nah, that this is so good. And man, that pancake, I can't wait till the next one comes out. Let's see what shape is in that one. Yeah. And then you can have the child. The discover shapes there, just like you do when you're laying on the in the backyard at night in the summer, looking up the clouds or the stars and identifying shapes and seeing things. You're doing that in the pancakes as you're getting yep. ready, and then getting ready to take care of mommy because mommy takes care of us a whole lot. Now I'm using some gender stereotypings, obviously, uh, but for many families, moms do a lot of that kind sure. of stuff. So we want to make sure we're taking care of mommy. This is your chance because we want, we're wanting to build in children a sense of competence. Uh, this is part of the psychosocial development uh, that comes from uh, Eric Erickson. But before we get there, I'm just going to go back and say cognitively, we're going to look at it in both ways. Okay. How do we develop? How do we know where they are? Okay. So the child that's sensing things by grabbing stuff that in their mouth uh, yes, we're going to baby-proof our house uh, so that they are not <laughs> swallowing small parts, sure. putting their heads in plastic bags or any of those kinds of things. But we are also recognizing that putting things in their mouth is vital. Uh, that's how they will learn. And then as those stages go on, pre-operational stage from two to seven, so as they're starting to go to school, start to see the world through language and mental images. The, the language development uh, cannot impress... Uh, on the podcast listeners, how much expanding the brain is happening during this time. Now, I don't buy into the theories, well, human beings only use 10% of their brain. I would love to know how in the world some guy comes up with yeah. these crazy statistics. And, I, <laughs> yeah, that, that reminds me of the, I, I, I've said this many times on the podcast and I hate it so much, but someone came up with this statistic and it just caught fire that 95% of being a dad is just being there. No, it's not. <laughs> Who came up with that? Like, Quality yeah. time. Yeah. yeah. So you're all over the But uh, yeah. 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 These statistics that just come out of nowhere. Yeah. I, I it's it's amazing. Uh, but during this time, the brain is gaining its greatest mass. Uh, and it, part of it is putting what's called myelin sheathing on the nerves. It's, it's gaining weight, gaining mass. Uh, and it's being developed by... Speech, speech is really driving that, uh, and and mapping the mind in other ways. Now, you mentioned earlier fear of spectrum kinds of things. Uh, instead of self-diagnosing your children, I think it is good to have a physician that you can trust, sure, to help you with that. Now, I know there are some parents. Well, I don't want my child 
I don't want it to wind up on their record someplace that they're on the spec Asperger's, for instance. Right. Uh, I had a seminary student, a graduate student, uh, who was afraid of getting labeled as on the spectrum, and he had Asperger's. Uh, the challenge was is if he had known and his mother had known, we could have max he could have maximized, his mother could have helped maximize his skills because Asperger's uh, is one of those where there's some challenges, but there's also some great blessings that can come from the ability to focus. Mm-hmm. So many people, uh, Elon Musk perhaps, is yeah. the most uh, famous Asperger, or at least I think he has Asperger's. That's what he claims. Uh, and he acts like it. Yeah. <laughs> and he <laughs> tweets like it. <laughs> uh, so uh, we will from time to time. Uh, now, historically, these would be wise men and women in the village. Mm. Now we call them doctors and we give them lots of money. Uh, But uh, human beings over time have always had wise men and women in the village to help us to see what's on target and what's not on target. So uh, just uh, in those checkups, the the physicians can do some checkups. And if they think there's a challenge, they'll send you to a specialist in that area. But don't go in with anxiety. But if there is uh, a challenge there... What that will do is we'll say, now, what is normal for everybody else isn't going to be normal for my child. So after you go through your grieving and lament piece, Mm -hmm. because my child isn't going to be that astronaut, probably. May own own Tesla, but he's not probably going to be an astronaut or have good social skills because of some of the other stuff. Then you got to develop a new normal. So we're developing a normal for this child. I don't think we want to do that always for every child because now we are trying to treat that child as an individual disconnected from every everyone. Children are, are not raised to be disconnected. They, we are not even raising individuals. We're raising, that's why it's called a socialization process. We're raising someone that functions in society. Right. And function and it's going to be able to grow and function in a society 50 years from now, 70 years from now. We want them to be able to function there. So we we are going to pay attention to norms. We are going to pay attention to relationships. Going to pay attention to communities. Uh, but if there is a... Uh, uh, some abnormality, (coughs) wow, something that is not normal in a child's uh, (laughs) cognitive or physical development, we want to find out and get the help that they can because some of those things of earlier intervention can offset some of the challenges that are going to come later on. Some of the things we know about speech development in children comes from uh, people who are deprived of the opportunity to speak. Hmm. Uh, through horrible cases of abuse or abandonment or whatever they were. And some children who don't have an opportunity to learn to speak till they're seven or eight may never develop the ability to speak. Wow. Because there's so much that's happening in the brain. So there's these things that are happening at these gate pieces. I don't say that to make you anxious, but just to realize that these are the quote-unquote normal pieces in the range. And if somebody's on some edge of the range other than that, then get help and intervention where they can. So for cognitive development, for Piaget on the individual level, sensory motor, then pre-operational, learning to think through languages and images, then concrete, uh, thinking in categories, and then formal operations where they can do hypothetical and scientific reasoning. So to create a hypothesis, you can't do that till junior high school because theoretical reasoning isn't available. 
wow. at five or six years old, seven, eight, nine years old. Uh, you can you can have them think in categories. You can have them think about things that are on the table. So if you're wanting them to learn science kinds of thing, it's very hands-on experiment. And of course, the greatest science lab in the world, I've already mentioned it, the kitchen, sure. is the, the greatest place for measurement yep. uh, and all of those kinds of things. We're going to, how much are we going to put? We're going to put three teaspoons. So what's that? Well, this is a teaspoon and this is a tablespoon. So we need teaspoons. We're going to go with the little one on yeah. this one. Yeah, I've heard Neil Tyson Degrassi, I think that's how you say his name, but he's talked about let your kids get into the cabinets and pull the pots and pans out. Yeah. Let them make the sounds. Let them yeah, right. let them play around. Yeah. Like yeah. this is their way yeah, of experimenting right. and yeah. learning. So yes, the kitchen. Yep, the kitchen. Uh, if you're a dad that uh, is a gearhead and works on cars, yeah. take them out there and uh, obviously keep them safe. But yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, do all. I I'm a. By the way, happy National Fountain Pen Day, just in case you weren't aware. Uh, I was not was aware. Today. today is National Fountain Pen Day. So well, there we go. <clears throat> my grandsons, when they were four, three years old, we had conversations, you know, about my pens versus their pens. So, uh, <laughs> uh, so when my granddaughter was born, she's nine now. I had that conversation with her when she was six months old. <laughs> you may not touch this, yeah. uh, but it becomes a joke so that over time, I would buy the little fellows fountain pens because sure. for me, writing literacy is part of part of my, yeah. my who I am. So when I, they think about me, they think about Papa's fountain pens, and they have fountain pens, or someday they will, and they're going to get to write things and draw pictures. And when they do, aha! I'm not going to get out my red one to underline bad spelling because it might be <laughs> spelling phonetically. Uh, but we're going to celebrate those growth pieces. Uh, so cognitive formation is one piece. Okay. But that's happening at the same time that Eric Erickson's uh, psychosocial development is happening. So the child is developing individual skills while developing relational skills. And these are, uh, we're going to be attending to both of those. Erickson's uh, theory has really made it into the popular uh thought processes when you mention a midlife crisis. That's using Erickson's language. Now, okay. un tragically, they're not using the language appropriately <laughs> because crisis doesn't mean meltdown in Eric Erickson. Crisis means an opportunity to learn and go to the next stage. Uh, so crisis is an opportunity. That's a big game changer right that there. That is a game changer. <laughs> of course, my students didn't always appreciate it when I would give them an opportunity to take a test. Yeah. <laughs> We have an opportunity scheduled for next Friday. Uh, come on, that's a test. No, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for you to learn and to demonstrate to me how much you learned. Yeah. These, crises, <laughs> these crises aren't that my child is going to fail or that I'm going to fail. These crises are an opportunity to learn a new skill set. Sure. To go to the next level. And we anticipate and we are building into our children an awareness over time that you're going to develop new skills over time. The beginning of those skills are not always easy. I don't think our children, for instance, should be introduced to every single music instrument and be engaged in lessons for every single music instrument. Sure. Uh, if and I, my brother's a, a musician, has his doctorates in uh, music education, uh, and he teaches in that uh, discipline. He lets me know that any parent who comes and says that their child can play anything. Their child can play nothing yeah. <laughs> because that child has not been taught or trained to focus their energies. Uh, so the beginning child, uh, infant stage to 18 months is trust versus mistrust. 
the greatest learning here uh, is that uh, the world is a trusting place. Now, here's an area where parents have to rethink who they are. Because if we're living in a world that sees everything through fear and anxiety, we're going to perpetuate that and build it into our children. Mm -hmm. And I think this is why we're getting more and more uh, challenges with child with children in schools uh, and social experiences because they are learning fear from their parents. Wow. Would you relate that to, um, I don't know that I'll call it a crisis, maybe for lack of a better term, I will right now, but the mental health crises, would that carry yes. over as well? Yes. That, that, uh, a cultural mental health, even though the children aren't going to be engaging in the economic world. They don't know the stock market went down 138 points sure. yesterday or whatever the number happened right. to be. Uh, however, and uh, if you want to geek out on this, Yuri Bronfenbrenner is the uh, theorist that looks at child development in these concentric circles. Okay. So dad's work, for instance, mom's work, where your wife works, impacts your children, although your children go, don't go to the university where mom works. Mm. Well, so, but the university affairs and behaviors have an impact on your kids, not just because they give your wife a paycheck and not just because of things go well at work, you know, right. things go well at home. If there's a crisis at work, there's this bleed over between work and, and home life. And that's sure. a whole field of study and family studies is the relationship between work and home life. But if we're going to build into our children trust instead of mistrust, we have to make sure we see the world as a trustworthy place, not in a foolish, leave the door open, welcome everybody in. Now, what's amazing to me is we will say, well, let's lock the door, then we'll let the internet bring everything into our house. That's good. So we have split the world into places of where I'm afraid of others, but I'm not really afraid of the places where I maybe should be a little more careful. Sure. Uh, maybe should be a little more worried about what information comes into our house than do you have 17 locks on your front door with a ring camera yeah. uh, that is able to multi-depth focus, you know, over time. I think we sometimes put our emphasis in the wrong place. So, for instance, stranger danger has been a part of the American psyche uh, for a good while now. Uh, as a Christian, that is unchristlike. So I'm called to love strangers, not be afraid of strangers. Sure. Okay. So that's and and that's why it's a Christian idea because it confronts so many things. Because most cultures, you have in-group and out-group behavior. Uh, and this is why you have identifiers of speech, identifiers of dress, identifiers of uh, customs, so we can determine who's in my group and who's out of my group. Mm. So I'm going to trust people that are in my group. I'm going to distrust people that are outside of my group. All right. Uh, so American culture, stranger danger. And we will teach young women, uh, if you're going to the store, make sure you park under the light uh, and make sure you have your... Uh, Spray, uh, pepper spray in hand and, and make sure you, well, unfortunately, most young women are abused by people they know. Yeah. Not by strangers at the mall. Same way with children. Uh, we are in a world right now of an anxiety of child shootings. I will say up front that every time there is a child shot in school, that breaks my heart. Sure. However... 
in a year, if there are four children that are killed in a year in a school, we want a national referendum on firearms and we want cops in every corridor of every building. On the, on the other hand, I'm even more heartbroken that there are more than four kids killed every week in their home. Right. Schools are not the most dangerous place for kids. Homes are. Yeah. So as we're building our children and seeing their stages of development, we've got to grasp this first stage of trust versus mistrust, that this is a trustworthy place and that it's safe here and it's okay here. And daddy's not going to come home angry from work and start kicking things. So uh, part of as we are seeing developmental stages in our children, it causes us to be reflective as, as dads. And uh, is there, are there things in me that didn't get developed properly? Yeah. I don't want to instill that in them. If I think the world is a mistrust, a non-trustworthy place, and if I build that into my children, then every, according to Eric Erickson and most psychologists will agree, if these beginning stages of development go sideways, we are setting up challenges down the way. Sure. So when it gets to the place where they're wanting intimacy versus isolation, which is roughly 21 to 39-year-olds, the, the range when they're going to get married. Right. If that bottom foundation of trust versus mistrust isn't, if that crisis isn't met, crisis meaning opportunity to learn trust. Mm -hmm. Okay. So when I, uh, you got potty training happening, you got lots of behaviors that are learning. If, if I find out when I make a mistake, I get the snot beat out of me, that's going to become a, a, an untrustworthy place. Sure. If my physical needs, my diaper isn't changed, my bottles, if I can't, if there's not enough food or the temperature fluctuates and it's not safe, or if I can't find mama uh, or daddy, uh, if that's missing later on, they are going to have some critical issues. Wow. So each of these, again, we're not going to come with anxiety. We're just coming with awareness. And that's what that app you were talking about. The next one is autonomy versus shame and doubt. Can the child, can the child function on their own? This is with the me do it stage. Uh, so we're wanting to develop some skills and you can do that. I, so for instance, getting ready Saturday night, getting ready for church on Sunday morning as a Christian, uh, or if you're a Sabbatarian, uh, Friday night, getting ready for Saturday, whenever it might be, it's a good time when children between in these two and three year old ages, uh, let's get ready for church tomorrow, honey. Uh, do you want to pick out your clothes? Yeah. You know, that's a biggie right there. Yep. And, uh, they're developing autonomy. They're learning how to do it on their own. If, on the other hand, as a dad, I'm frustrated because I feel incompetent with my life, when it takes them a little while to get their coat on properly, I am instilling in them a sense of shame. Hmm. And dad's listening. Shame is the worst gift you can give your kids. We're not going to tell our kids shame on you. We're not dispensers of shame. We're dispensers of love and mercy. And for me, it has to come, for me personally, it comes because Christ has been merciful well, absolutely. towards me. Absolutely. So we're going to, when they're, which means you, you got to plan more time to get out the door. You know that. When your kids came along, that was the big game changer. You oh, and your yeah. wife, the drop of a, yeah. you're, you're out the door. 15 minutes, both of us. <laughs> Boom, we could do it. Now, and now? It's almost 15 days. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's never enough time yeah. ahead for us to make it where we need to be. You can start a new tech company quicker than you can get out of the house. 
Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but you're you're built this if you see it as a frustrating time for that 3-year-old who wants to put on their own shoes and for them it's very critical I get to put my shoes on. Yes. And you're saying but I'm on the keyboard at church tonight I have to be there. Well that means you just start with a little extra shoe putting on time, you yeah. know, to navigate yeah. that journey. Right. Um, and will we nail it perfectly every time? No. There'll come times when we don't do it. Well, it then gives us a great opportunity to confess to ourselves, to our spouse, and to our kids. You know, I, you're right, baby. You you can do that by yourself, and I'm so proud of you that yeah. you you put on shoes like <clears throat> I've never seen a three year old put on <laughs> shoes like you. You have such style, yeah. even when their shoes are pointing the wrong right. direction. You <laughs> help them change it over eventually. Then we get into initiative versus guilt. This is when they start trying on new tasks and then the next is industry versus inferiority uh, the five to 13 year old kind this is where kids get into uh, crafts okay and this, this is a gift for not only dads to make things with their kids you know used to uh, when scouting was a big thing is when you would make the little uh, soapbox cars and little yeah. cars that you yep. would you would race uh, because for children at this age they need to make stuff uh painting you know this is where you have lots of resources in the house for them to to create and make uh and it's also i think vital to connect your kids with other uh adults around grannies grandpas aunts uncles good friends sure of uh, various colors yeah uh, and classes uh to help them realize that there there are lots of safe people and they have different skills so if you're interested in blacksmithing I know nothing about blacksmith, <laughs> uh, but we can find somebody that can show you what that's like. Yeah. You know, and this is kind of cool stuff, you know, and uh, yeah, you can make. Uh, mommy's been wanting a hook for that pan over there anyway, so, you know, you can go make one. Uh, so that's a critical piece. Each of these crises stages are setting up, if, if you pass here, to use academic language, if you successfully navigate that crisis, that sets you up for the next one. And this goes on, the beauty of Erickson's stages, it goes on through adulthood even, and to the end of life issues of what's needed at that time. Hmm. This is a lot of stuff I'm throwing here. Yeah. Uh, but fortunately, uh, digitally, a lot of it's available online very quickly. Uh, I have to underscore, though, don't get anxious about it. Uh, be inquisitive, not anxious. Sure. That's good. Be inquisitive, not anxious. So learn as much as you can, uh, and don't think, don't think you're an expert because you read a book on something. Uh, just put it into practice. Try it out. You know, talk to other dads yeah. uh, and moms and grandpas. Uh, uh, grandfathering in our culture, grandparenting in our culture, still does not have uh, a script, social script on what's acceptable. So those are all negotiated. So uh, dads can help their children and their own fathers by building spaces for those relationships. Uh, that's going to be part of the trust and part of the competencies that child's going to develop, knowing that, that they have connections. Right. Really challenging in a mobile society where you might be separated long distances. Sure. I know we're just about out of time, but I need to mention another domain of development, and that is the moral development. Okay. Moral development. And you'll really see this as you're playing games with kids. Uh, uh, the, there is that age with children at which uh, the the rules have to be followed completely. Uh, you cannot 
break any rule because that's what the rule says. Uh, there are two major theorists I'll bring to mind. The most known one is Lawrence Kohlberg uh, with stages of moral development and going through, uh, uh, you know, like the second stage is just being a good boy, uh, good girl. Uh, that's moral development. I need to be a good boy and a good girl. And that's where moms and dads are going to help. Dads are going to help that child. You are a good, you are a good boy. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't want, of all the boys in the world, of all the girls in the world, if I could pick, it would be you. Right. It would be you. Uh, and that's important also when our girls are 18, uh, that they're not finding affection from every man they meet. Sure. That they've grown up in a home where they know appropriate boundaries of affection with their fathers. And this is why sexual abuse is so damaging. But it's also why dads have such a powerful opportunity to prepare young women for the relationships with other men in the future. Uh, and it's going to start early on with this good boy, good girl piece. Dads can help them know you are a good boy. Mm -hmm. Did. And, and when we deal, they deal with lying, which every child is going to do yes. at some point. The way you deal with that's going to be so critical because we want to help them realize, you know, you know we're not going to lie. Uh, you can use your family name. We're littles. Uh, we don't lie. Uh, and for us, we're Christian. We love Jesus and loving Jesus calls us not to lie. And the reason we don't do that, because at this stage, when lying becomes an issue, that means their language skills have developed and their cognitive skills have developed to be able to handle right and wrong. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, now some, uh, <laughs> my precious mother, even in her 60s and 70s, when she made a mistake with a memory, she would often use the language, well, I lied. That wasn't, <laughs> no, you didn't lie, mother. Lie means with the intent to deceive. Sure. So you misspoke, but you didn't lie. So some people are challenged with that definition their whole life. Uh, so we want to make sure the child knows that uh, telling a, a creative story is not lying. Yeah. Okay. Telling a creative story is not lying. But if I break something and blame it on my sister, now that's lying because I've, I've deceived. And it gives you an opportunity to walk it through. And at the end of the conversation, you are a good boy. This is why I know you can tell the truth. Right. And I know that you want to stay a good boy, right? Yes, I do. Daddy, I want to stay a good boy. Well, then, then we're going to learn how to tell the truth. Yeah. Uh, and then you'll have appropriate uh, consequences for... Uh, telling lies uh, that are there, which are different at five than at 16. Oh, sure. Uh, those consequences are, are different. Right. As are the reasons for lying are different <laughs> at five than they are at 16. Yes, they are. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Lawrence Kohlberg is going to be, and you can see that tracks a lot with the cognitive development kind of piece, although Jean Piaget also has moral development stages. The other one I want to mention is Carol Gilligan. She was one of the students of, Jean, of uh, Lawrence Kohlberg. Kohlberg did all of his research with uh, young men at Harvard University. Uh, so he was speaking primarily of upper class males at an Ivy League school. And Gilligan, one of his students, says, you know, Doc, uh, there are these other things like women in the world, and not everybody is an elite, and everybody has not had the opportunity to track sure. and get admitted into Harvard. So she did some critical work, particularly with lady uh, female moral development, and it tracks more on what is good for the community, what is good for the group. And this is why little girls... 
deciding right and wrong isn't about isn't always about the rules. It's about what helps my friends, and friends are very important. So you need to be careful, dads, when you accept a job that takes your daughter out of her friendship group. You've caused a moral crisis for her. I'm not saying it's insurmountable. I just need you to make sure that you're considering your children's development. Sure. When you accept that job, you need to count the cost. Is it really worth the extra uh, to accept a job? So just consider your child's developmental place. Is this a good time for us to make this move? So a daughter who that's learning the importance of friends and the role of friends and saying things like, well, baby, you'll make new friends someplace else, uh, doesn't help. It's true. Children are resilient. They mm-hmm. can make new friends, but it is very challenging to do so. It's particularly challenging for dads that are in moms that are in the military or in working for corporations who force them to move. Sure. To move a lot. So Gilligan is going to be more in terms of uh, being able to care for self, so care for others. Uh, and then what's good for the, com- the community, the friends, as opposed to what's good for me or what's good for the rule. So I think as we're caring for our children, we want to keep both in mind. We want to keep uh, some of the rule kind of understanding, well, we're not speeding, we're not stealing because those are rules, but also keep this, well, we're not stealing, not because it's a law against it, but because that hurts people. Yeah. We're not wanting people just to do what's legal. We're wanting to do what's morally right. Right. Uh, relationally right. Sure. And I think that's a piece of our culture that's been lost a little bit, particularly in individualistic culture. Oh, sure. I do what's right for me as opposed to some stuff. I had a big us. conversation with my son, you know, about to be six at this point, on being considerate of mm-hmm. other people. And, you know, I've bled that into just about anything and everything, even lying and and how that can cascade into issues that impact other people. But it's funny, and I'm sure other kids do this, but it's just funny to see it happen in the home where I'll have a conversation with him, and then he'll carry on that same language to my daughter, who's just turned four, and he was like, Reagan, that's not very considerate of you. She's like... <laughs> it's just no idea, but it's very funny. He's he practicing. He takes, yeah. Yes, yeah. he yeah. takes it yeah. upon himself, and yeah. then he's the disciplinarian. It's uh, yeah. it's fun to see that happen. Right. It gives you a chance to bring up that conversation next time with him. You were right when you told your sister the other day about being considerate. Now think about what you just did. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. I think one way to wrap this up is to see our children as moving on this continuum from being very dependent on me sure all the dads listening know what it's like to bring that first child home from the hospital. Dear Lord. Yeah. What <laughs> did I do nine months and three days ago? <laughs> <laughs> the complete dependence uh, that's there and knowing that this is going to cost in, in multiple levels. The, going from dependence, from that radical dependence of an infant, uh, to that, watching that child grow and mature, take pictures, you know, write journals, have logs, have mm-hmm. things for children to look at later. Uh, wow, this is when you were, and this is what you did. It's going to be very important for them to know a little bit of their history through pictures, not just digital ones. You need to find ways to get some of those printed out. Uh, artifacts, you know, they're going to be around. We're going to move them from dependence 
in their adolescent years, we're going to move, they're moving towards more independence when their peer groups become more important to them. Now, parents still, by and large, set the moral traje trajectory, but their peer groups become more important. This is where they learn about themselves in relationship with their peer groups. Uh, this is not the same as seven-year-old sleepovers. This is 15, 16-year-old behavior. You learning through peer relationships. Going from dependence to independence, I can do it, Mom. I've got it. How come I can't have the car at 2 in the morning? Well, you've got to create those boundaries and understanding of it. But knowing that they are learning to be independent with the goal towards interdependence. So our goal is not independence. Our goal is interdependence. But they can't get from dependence to interdependence without passing through independence. Mm -hmm. So you've instilled moral fiber. You've instilled good behavior in your children. In adolescence, there's going to be some hiccups and bouncing around. Sometimes I jokingly tell people, you, you just get up, get your cup of coffee, and see which kid walks down the stairs today. <laughs> Is it the one who's going to be a doctor or the one that's going to go live at the beach? Because yesterday it was the doctor, the day before it was the beach. Uh, and in some families, the hair color changes every day. You yeah. know, the, the behaviors are just radically different. Well, this is why you're the adult and they're not. Sure. They're going through a crisis. Their identity crisis is, is working through at this point. You have to be careful that your crisis doesn't amplify their crisis. Hmm. If you're feeling unsure about who you are, you are not going to be able to handle their insecurities about who they are. So if you're a Christian, our identity is in Christ. And knowing that if you're not a Christian, you've got to make sure you find a place for your identity to be solid and secure so that when your children are going through an identity crisis, yours is solid. Right. Now, you can map adult development, which is perhaps conversation later, of us growing. We talk about developmental stages of children. Sure. Development stages of dads are important because they're happening parallel. Yeah, uh, they're happening at the same time. Uh, but even if I am going through a crisis, because uh, let's say dads between the ages of, uh, say, 28 and 35 are typically going to go through an adult somewhere in there. You're going to go through an adult male crisis. You're mm -hmm. going to hit another one uh, mid to late 30s. Another one's going to hit in again. The challenge is to make sure you do not overlay your stressors of change on top of your Adolescent sure. teens' crisis or change. They need to experience some crisis. You can't get from independent to interdependent without figuring out a little bit of who you are. Sure. Now, it's always within boundaries, but figuring out who you are is you got to give some space and don't melt down when they have a meltdown uh, so that then, as they navigate through that, find their identity, that then they can go into interdependence. So that's kind of the, the big picture. We're going from dependence, radical dependence, less dependence, sheltering them, got to find out who they are in the right. world, to becoming interdependent later on so mm -hmm. they can connect back in and see their role as, as competent men and women in society, as leaders uh, who don't need to keep running away from their parents. Yeah. So some of the language I hear of silly boomer uh, and all these cultural motifs are rooted in lack of core identity and who they are. That they need to poke fun at and denigrate elders or denigrate children uh, because they haven't navigated in a healthy way from dependence to interdependence 
to independence to interdependence. Mm. Do old people do silly things? I confess, yes, I do. Uh, however, uh, I think that's to be celebrated sure. and valued as opposed to be demeaned. And I would say that for every age of our children, of ourselves, of our spouses, of our parents, and, and those that still have great grand, uh, grandparents around, we're going to value every age because, well, for me as a Christian, we're all made in the image of God. Right. So we're going to value that toddler in the image of God. We're going to value that teenager in the image of God, even though you got to look really hard to see it from time to time. <laughs> we're going to value our spouse as in the image of God. By the way, the best thing you can do for your parents, dad, your children, dad, is to love their mama. Mm, yeah. That's uh, the most critical piece out of all this conversation. We're talking about children developing. The most important thing that you can do for your kids is to love their mama. Uh, and uh, uh, creating for them a safe space in which we can care for one another. Because that's where you want them to be. Right. In this journey, they become interdependent. They take their responsibility in providing care and receiving care in an appropriate way as adults. Let me ask you two questions as we wrap this up. First question is, is there ever a point in which we as dads stop having some sort of a role in our child's development? Or are we essentially in some form or fashion an anchor that's always there? We might have less of a role when they're 35, right. but do we still have a role to play? Uh, I made the mistake, and I don't know where I got it, but growing up as a dad, I thought my job would end when they were 18. Uh, when I was 18, yeah. for crying out loud, I was uh, I graduated from junior college at 18. Yeah. And I got married at 18. And I had kids by the time I was 20 when I graduated from college with my bachelor's degree in teaching school. So I had this idea that when I, if I just get my kids to 18, no, uh, no, that's not true. We have a lifelong. But I think what we do is we move, our identity moves in this process. I'm still me, but I move into the more sage mm. Uh, so dads that have toddlers today, uh, five, seven-year-olds or teenagers today, uh, look forward to the time when you're the sage. Uh, be willing to tell stories. Be willing to remember. Be willing to say, you know, I, I think I did a good job here. I blew it there. I didn't understand <laughs> that. But, you know, life is good. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Uh, my parents both passed away a couple of years ago. Uh, three years ago for my mother this uh, last month and my dad two and a half years ago. Uh, in, a, in a way, they still have parenting pieces in my life. Hmm. Uh, the day my mom, anniversary of my mother's passing last month, uh, uh, wanted to give her a call. You know, my one of my brothers lives in my parents' house and they still have the same phone number. I was tempted to call him on his landline so I could use mom's phone number. Wow. But there's a sense in which my parents core strengths continue to inform me. Mm. In a similar way, my mother and dad's weaknesses, which we all have them, our goal isn't to be perfect nor to raise perfect children, sure. but to acknowledge what our weaknesses are and know that I need other people to help me in those weaknesses. Yeah. Uh, I still am informed by my mom and dad's strengths and by their weaknesses. So yeah, even after you're gone, yeah. 
your dad jobs. So we say you're always a dad. As soon as it happens. Your dad's jobs. I have a picture on my camera of my parents' tombstone. And behind that, I can see, or next to that is my grandparents. And behind that is my great-grandparents. I even have a great-great-grandfather buried, you know, within camera shot uh, of this spot in southern Missouri. Uh, So there's a sense in which that snapshot, uh, even though my grandparent had less impact, there's still a sense in which there's continuity. I I can see where my dad's work ethic came from, my grandfather. I can can see where his compassion came from, uh, his mother. I can can see some adaptability and flexibility. I see some uh, willingness to do whatever I need to do to make sure my family's cared for. Uh, And I... Pray that I've lived that out in my own life. Oh, absolutely. And I think we all have that same prayer. Okay, good to know. Good to uh, verify and validate that we are always fathers. But we don't <laughs> We don't have to carry responsibility then. That's, yeah. that's uh, if I could be transparent now, yeah. that's one of the challenges I have is when, how do I get to the place making sure that if my grandchildren uh, or my adult children, as I mentioned, my oldest one's 41, uh, as they're going through a crisis, how can I be a sage knowing when to listen, when to talk and not carry the pain of their suffering? Mm. How can I be empathetic without being traumatized? Sure. And that's going to be a critical piece, not for you now, but for later. And as you're willing to share your ups and downs with your parents, uh, how can you tell the story in a way that you're asking for their sage perspectives? Mm -hmm without dumping your crisis on them. Mm. Uh, so, uh, you know, asking, uh, you know, a dad of your age, asking a dad my age uh, how to set this up, I would say that's one thing you need to do to set that stage up. And I think it starts, even as dad, starts for us as our children are young. Yeah. So that, yes, I'm more responsible. However, uh, I can't feel every pain to the level that they're feeling. I need to be empathetic without being traumatized. Yeah. Because if I'm traumatized, now I'm not able to be dad. Sure. That's good. I, I imagine that that's a difficult thing yep. to separate as well. It is. and But we need to start it when your kids are six yeah. and four. Uh, yes, you hurt your finger. Uh, uh, and yes, you got in trouble at school. And right. yes, you were bullied. And we'll talk about that and we'll work our way through it. Uh, but we have to be secure in who we are so that we're not traumatized by that or we will overreact. This is where abuse can come in uh, or workaholic behaviors to avoid mm. my dad responsibilities. There's a, lots of ways to avoid. Bottles are ways to avoid. Uh, uh, lots of ways to avoid, but it frequently comes because I can't, I'm having trouble empathizing without being traumatized. Yeah. So I have to step away. And yeah. you don't want to do that. You want to be an engaged dad. Sure. And I think that's a key element of this podcast series. Absolutely. How can I be an engaged dad? Well, to be an engaged dad, I need to be growing and maturing myself. Right. So I'm available as a person can hear, person can have a conversation, person can act when I need to. That's one of the gifts of dads. And I do believe there are gender differences between moms and dads. Sure, absolutely. I think that's one of the differences between dads. Sometimes we can think a little more analytically and we can act a little more quickly. Yeah. Now, we need our wives to help us moderate through the process. But I have to be careful that I'm able to do that and not be traumatized by it because I can't be dad if I turn into a 
puddle on the floor. Right. Yeah. You mentioned, you know, hurting the finger. My dad always told me growing up, it will feel better when it quits hurting. That's what he always told me. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Dad. Appreciate that sage advice. Um, all right. Last question that I have for you. So I learned a little bit more than uh, what I knew, which wasn't much to begin with, but dealing with the varying domains of development that our children go through. There's clearly some overlapping that happens with right. these domains, which um, can present a unique challenge, I would imagine. But from what little I know on the topic, I've read a lot and seen a lot that indicates that there are some really formative developmental phases that happen from the five to eight, eight to 12 mm -hmm. year span. Um, clearly after this discussion as fathers, we need to be involved through every phase. And I don't know that it would be a good idea to maybe put more of an emphasis on one phase than the other, but I'm going to ask you the question anyway. Is there a is 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 it more important not not that we should be like okay I'm gonna be super dad when they're six to nine and then when they're a teenager I'm out of here. I'm hitting my yeah, yacht yeah, and I'm yeah, gone yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but you know still be engaged but is there is there a span within our child's development that we need to be maybe extra intentional in I would say it's more like it shifts and changes. Uh, there's lots of work on studies on how critical the first two years are and mm -hmm. setting some of those foundational pieces cognitively, physically, uh, interactive, socially. Uh, a lot of people, there's a whole field of psychology called sure. uh, personality theory that talks about most of that is set by two. Uh, so that's critical period, setting some same things up. But also, as I mentioned earlier, the adolescent period, uh, they are going through trauma. Uh, and if you're not there, so it's a different kind of there. It's a different expectation. So I think it's not of when and do I really need to pay attention. It's how do I pay attention differently. I see. And part of the tragedy is, as I, I uh, jokingly tell people when I'm doing parenting classes, you know, I really learned how, what five-year-olds need. Only problem is my youngest one was eight when I figured that yeah. out. <laughs> <laughs> so knowing yeah. that I have to be flexible and watching and being uh, aware of those shifts and changes and knowing, uh, you know, if I have a teenage child and an eight-year-old, I have to be present, but I'm present in two different ways. Sure. Because most of us, you know, unless you only have you have just an only child or you just have twins and you said that's it. Yeah. Most of us hell have kids that are at times in two different places. Sure. So we're going to be present for those two children, but we're going to be present in different ways. What they yeah. need from us as they're navigating to use Erickson stuff, as they're navigating their crisis, what they're developing, then they need a different kind of dad different kind of coach, different sure. kind of mentoring, different kind of uh, grieving when they're, they fail. Some of the greatest learning comes from failure. Absolutely, so, it does. And how do we create space where uh, we would rather have you fail than do nothing? Mm. And what does it look like to have a dad uh, that can help a child fail at seven is different than a dad that uh, finds out that his son got... The neighbor's daughter pregnant yeah at 17. uh 
neither one of those are the end of the world. Sure. They can become the end of the world if I sense, if I am rejected and my identity is trashed with those, whatever those, the tragedy that happened at seven, exactly. tragedy that happened at 17. Uh, we have to make sure that we are, we are present, but it's going to shift. I don't think there's one spot where it's most important. Uh, we need to be present. Yes, absolutely. You said something that sparked one more question. I know I've held you for too long, but I'm going to ask it anyway, because I appreciate our time together. So you mentioned, you know, you figured out what a five-year-old needs when your child's eight. So with families, which I think would be a decent majority of families, at least here in America and probably around the world, but you have multiple children. Right. Now you have your oldest child and then you have your second child. And usually, uh, you know, I, I, I know that this is true with friends of mine who grew up in families of three and four and maybe more, but the youngest child gets such a different treatment. Um, And some of that might be due to various reasons, but some of it might also be due to the fact that as a parent, they just figured out a better or different way or a different approach for that third or fourth or fifth child. So, is you please just give a short answer for this if it's possible, shortest you can do. Um, but how should we as fathers um, be aware of that? And what should we do to try and prevent tension with the kids? Uh, tension is going to happen. So tension prevention is not an appropriate goal, I don't think. Uh, tension because- mitigation. Tension mitigation is far better <laughs> because if our goal is tension uh, prevention, then we if you have three kids, we probably should have three houses in three different states. <laughs> uh, we actually want them to learn through the tension sure, because they're going to have to go to work. And where are you going to find a job that has no tension? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, there's not one. Right. Uh, so there are skills that they're learning even through the tension. So I think the key is having a clear awareness of what our moral fiber is for our family. We're going to treat people with respect. We're going to love others. We're going to uh, we're going to serve others. So having an opportunity for the family to be on a service project someplace else, because families which are insular, only looking inward, are going to create selfish families. So if you can, from an early age, uh, now homeless people need dinners times other than Thanksgiving. So. It's amazing how many soup kitchens have volunteers on Thanksgiving, but a random Tuesday in February, nobody's interested. Sure. Uh, so find ways to be of service to others. Uh, the, the second piece of that is to realize that fourth child was born into a family that had three kids. First child was born into a completely different family. That family had no kids. Right. Uh, I'm a firstborn, my little brother, uh, the one with the doctorate in music. He's 10 years younger than I am. We have two brothers in between. Uh, I was born into a family with just a mom and dad. He was born into a family with a ten-year-old brother and and two other and two other. It's a different family. Sure, it may look the same, same name is different. So, if we have a if we have a growing consistency in our moral fiber, and for me as a Christian, my goal role as a disciple, uh, including service to others and loving others in the name of Christ. If I, if my worship at home is as faithful or more faithful than my worship on Sunday. Now I've mitigated the tension. I've used Mm -hmm. the tension in a creative way. 
Because when the crisis comes up, I've got, I know where my resources are and I can keep bringing them into the discussion. Was it harder on you for the firstborn? Probably. You know, does junior, the third one down, get a little bit easier? May have. But life is kind of that way. Yeah. Uh, what What are the gifts that you have? Uh, what How How do we maximize uh, your giftings, your possibilities, and how do we help identify your weaknesses and know where you need people to help you sure. along the way? So if you, uh, again, born into different families, be consistent uh, in relationship with other elements of society. And thirdly, uh, having a core value system uh, that guides things because stuff changes over time. Absolutely. Uh, Values need to be those. For me, it's the three that abide forever, faith, hope, and love. Right. Those abide forever. So uh, I'm going to keep coming back to those. And even though at 61, hope looks different than it did at 31, uh, I need to make sure I'm living out of faith, hope, and love. Right. And I imagine that even if those still don't quite mitigate the tension the way that you would hope that it does, by the time your children actually have kids, they'll probably realize, they'll probably get the revelation themselves. Like, oh, this is why dad did what he did. <laughs> dad, yeah. I'm sorry. I didn't mean, yeah. didn't mean yeah. to be mad at you yeah. all these years. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I think that this has been a super informative episode. Um, you've, you've provided a lot. Uh, this is definitely one of those go back and listen to it three and four times and flag it because as your kids get older, keep going back and listening to it as they continue to develop. Uh, and you provided a bunch of resources and individuals to gather information from. So I appreciate that as well. Um, well, I've got no other questions. I'm not going to throw anything else at you. I appreciate your time as always. And, uh, I look forward to the next time I can get you back on the podcast. My pleasure. And thank you for the invitation and the dads, the competent dads that are listening because they have the skills necessary Mm -hmm. to care for the ones that the Lord has put in their hands. Yes. All right. Well, thank you so much for being with us. This is Fathering Our Future, the podcast for dads. I'm Anthony Vandegrift, and I hope you'll join me next time.